I want to invite you to stand with me as we turn to God's Word. It is our custom to stand together in reverence of not only that the Scriptures are God's Word, but they are God's revelation to us about who He is and what He has done for us in this season of Christmas. We've been going through a series uh, called Light in the Darkness, and we've been looking at the passage in John's Gospel, the first chapter, the first through the 18th verse. And today we're going to be looking at when John tells us that he became flesh and dwelt among us. I want you to hear now the word of God from the Gospel of John, chapter 1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. And in him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world. And though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who receive him, to those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or of a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him. He cried out saying, this is the one I spoke about when I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father. He has made him known. This is the word of God. You may be seated. I'm always intrigued whenever we watch movies to try to determine what the worldview of the movie is. I don't know if you've seen the movie uh, Forrest Gump. Have you seen that movie, Forrest Gump? Uh, When it first came out, we, we watched it and laughed hysterically at some of the things that were going on. If you haven't seen the movie, I'm not gonna be a spoiler. I'm not gonna tell you what it's about. But in the end of the movie, it gives you the worldview of Forrest Gump. And in the end, he's sitting on a bench, or I should say he's sitting uh, in the in talking with his former wife who has passed away, and as he's trying to tell her about what life has unfolded now that she's dead, 
and the son that they have born into this world is now growing. Toward the very end of the movie, he sends the son off on a school bus for his day of being in school. And for those of you who don't know, Forrest Gump is kind of a low IQ person. He goes through life not really understanding everything that's happening to him. His son is incredibly brilliant. And so he decides he's going to take care of this boy, and he does so by putting him on the school bus, sending him off to school, and then he sits there waiting for the school bus all day so that when the son comes home, he, he will be there to take care of him. It's while he's sitting there, as the movie ends, that there's a feather that seems to be kind of resting on his foot. And the wind comes and it just blows the feather. And it seems like the feather is going on its own power, going in whatever direction, but the wind is all behind it. That is the worldview. What is it? Does life have meaning? By the end of the movie, you want to say, yeah. But no one's really sure what meaning it has. Well, as we've studied this passage this morning, one of the things we discovered is that in the world that John was writing this gospel, the worldview in that day was made up, regardless of what they believed about God or their world, there was incredible spiritual confusion. People had worshipped at one time these beings called the, the great gods of Zeus, Mount Olympus, and they had worshipped these gods that were really stories of gods that were like men, like us. And they had this arbitrary power to run our lives or interrupt our days with whatever they decided was for, for quiche, uh, whatever they decided was important to them to carry out. But as they prayed to those gods, they found out those gods didn't really answer their prayers, that they couldn't solve their problems. The spiritual confusion that came from that time was compounded by the Roman Empire that came and conquered what was left of the old Greek Empire. And as it spread through the world, its power and took over control of various peoples of various groups, it homogenized in many ways different cultures and all of their beliefs were, were mixed together in such a way that people didn't know what was true anymore. And it led to moral deterioration. Oh, there was still the idea that there should be marriage, but marriage was only something you did to have legitimate heirs. There was also brothels and other places where, where people could enjoy the sensualities of life. And so, so philosophies were, were built around that. We still have one in, that really maybe is one of our gods today called Epicureanism. Have you ever heard of it? It's called eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow you die. That's Epicureanism. And that led not only to spiritual confusion, moral deterioration, it led to a hunger for decency. A hunger for decency and justice. As we've gone through that, we've discovered that maybe there, there were not much that much different in our culture to what culture John wrote this gospel to, which is really the whole reason he wrote the gospel. He was addressing the truth of God in a culture that had a belief system that didn't believe in God. 
A belief system is simply this. It's an ideology or set of principles that helps you and me to determine or interpret our everyday reality. A belief system. I've often heard people say, it's not what people say that they, they show what they believe. It's what people do. That really reveals what they believe. And in truth, that, that probably is a good way of identifying the belief systems of our day. But more importantly, you still see some belief systems that were part of John's day that still plague us in our day. Even though we say we're a Christian nation, we're finding in our nation overwhelmingly uh, a confusion of our day of spirituality. There's a moral deterioration in our culture. There, there is a, a desire for decency and justice that reigns in our hearts when we look in our news and see what's happening in our world. And so when you and I begin to think about what belief systems are competing with the Christian faith, well, the first one is atheism. Atheism is that, simply, that simple belief that, that there is no God. That how you live your life is your life. We hear that when we hear people talk about their own autonomy to do what they want with their bodies. And when you hear that kind of thing, you're listening to a worldview that literally cries out and says, I don't believe there is a God because I am God. We're seeing a rise of narcissism. Did you know that? We're seeing a huge rise of narcissism in our culture. Why? Why are we seeing that? Because there is the belief that there is no God. I have to be accountable to no one but myself. Another is agnosticism. Agnosticism is a belief system where basically you say, if there is a God, we can't know him. He's just someone who's out there. He's probably set the world in order. We can never know who he is or what he has created us for because we have doubts as to his existence. And so in our day, we're seeing that played out in our, 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 our life as a culture. Because you see people making decisions saying that they believe there is a God, but it doesn't influence how they live. Or maybe I should say the, the God that you and I would understand from the scriptures is not one they worship. So therefore, they either worship the God of their own imaginations or they worship a God that someone else comes up with. And we're seeing a rise, by the way, of cults. We're seeing a rise of people being influenced by faiths if you would call them that, that really speak to something that's quite amazing. I, I was just going through the internet the other night, this past week, thinking about this, and as I came to the page of the Unitarian Universalist Association, I looked at what their, their byline is for their organization's purpose. They say this on the webpage, you will find it at uua.org. They say, our universe the, from the smallest particles to the galaxies beyond our galaxy fills us with profound wonder. Isn't that true? It is. It's true. They go on to say, why life exists and for what purpose? Humans have struggled to answer that question for millennia. That's true too. But in a day and an age when so much is revealed to us, by science, quote-unquote God, may or may not be a part of our worldview. So what is it they're worshiping? 
science, didn't it? Well, it was no different in John's day. In fact, if you go to that webpage, they go on to say on their webpage that people with atheist and agnostic beliefs are pro-science, pro-reason, and pro-evolution. We know there is no one right answer. Hear it? When it comes to belief, and we don't let that stop us from acting or taking action for a better world, we build a community that welcomes us to our whole, welcomes us in our wholeness, cherishes our doubts, invites our ongoing search for truth. In fact, Dr. William Schultz, who is the uh, human rights activist and president and CEO of the Universe, Unitarian Universalist uh, Service Committee, writes this about our humanistic beliefs. He says, quote, We believe that human beings are responsible for the future. That history is in our hands. Mm, goes on. It's in our hands because... We don't believe there is a God or that there is an unchangeable fate of humanity. Isn't that interesting? Is he right? Well, a lot of what they said is true. We do live in a universe that has incredible complexity. We have seen throughout the images of cultures that have risen before ours and even will come after ours is gone complete confusion as to why we exist. But it's in that particular culture that John writes this gospel that you might believe in God. Which God? What God? Well, along with atheism and agnosticism is a third way, and that is the way of understanding that there is a general and special revelation that God has given Though we cannot know God in his entirety. In fact, we don't even know our spouses in their entirety, do we? I've been married. I've been married almost 30, well, I won't say how many years. A lot. Three decades. And I am still discovering things about my wife I didn't know when I married her. So why in God's name would anyone think that we could know God exhaustively? And therefore, John writes this gospel showing us that because we have no capacity to know God, God has done something for us that we couldn't do for ourselves. People who've sought for God have done so in this way. They believe that God is someone we can reason with, that we can come through our rational facilities and come to know. That will not be sufficient. Why? Why? Because any thoughts of who we think God are are the God of our imagination, the God who we create in our own, heart, our own mind and hearts that we want God to be. Well, then, is there another way in which people seek to know God? Yeah, the ra irrational mysticism is another way. Uh, do you all know the Beatles? You ever heard of the Beatles? When they first came out, they were hot. They, they, there was no song they wrote that did not hit the charts. And as you saw these four men from England rise in stardom, they began to look for purpose in their lives. And you know what they turned to? They turned to drugs. They started, they started experimenting with, with psychedelic drugs to inspire them to, to write new music. Some of the strangest music I've ever heard. Rubber Soul, you ever heard that song? 
how about uh, we all live in a yellow submarine? Well, there's a few more there. Well, where did that come? It came from the experimentation with drugs. And so in John's day, there were people who took drugs because they were looking for God. They were looking for what brought meaning in life. And John writes his gospel where people who have tried that, and it's been empty. They don't know who God is. And so when writing this, John wants us to understand that the word became flesh. This word we saw two weeks ago is the, the reason, the, the expression of God in the world. In fact, when he says this, he says it in verse 14 so, so powerfully. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. Let me tell you, I could preach for the next three years on this passage. Do you have time? I, I forgot my watch. Did you? Well, let me just very quickly go through this very quickly for you this morning. It won't do it justice. But please notice he says that God's word is his self-expression. It has become like us. It has become human. Why is this so important? Well, if we can't know God through mysticism or through our rational thinking, then how can we possibly know God unless he reveal himself? And throughout Christian theology of the ages, we have understood that God exists because of what is created around us. When you look into the, the trees and the beauty of, this, of the creation and we see the sun and the moon and the stars, there is a natural desire to want to know where it came from. And, and the only thing we can look at is that there must be a creator no one can ever really understand this until you have a child or watch a child come into the world. It's amazing. When our daughter was born, I will never forget how when that child came into the world, I was changed because I knew that there was something I was responsible for that I had no ability to deliver on. I was responsible for another life. And that responsibility caused me to start asking deep and abiding questions about how should I live? How do I teach this small child right and wrong? How do I lead them? And how do I make sure they don't make the mistakes I did, right? Especially those mistakes that I look back on with shame. Well, the most amazing part of John's gospel is that this is the reason God became flesh. is because of the, cons the spiritual confusion in our day, the ignorance that you and I have on who God is and why he's made us, that that God who created the world and everything we know became like us so that we could know him. He says, secondly, that the word made his dwelling among us. What does that mean? Well, in the days where you made a dwelling, you pitched a tent. You, you literally, you literally uh, go camping, so to speak. I, I don't know about you, but the last time I went camping with someone was years ago. We went with a couple of fraternity brothers, and I wanted to get out of there as fast as I could. I mean, after two nights, they really started smelling bad. I got to know those guys better than I knew myself. And, and I want you to know, camping really brings out the real truth of who people are. Have you ever camped with people? Well, in the same way, God 
from the very beginning has created you to know him, to glorify him and enjoy his presence forever. That's what the scriptures teach. And so as we look at this this whole truth of who God is and he's becoming flesh, the reason God went to all this trouble is that you were created to love God. That was your purpose in creation. And more importantly, he goes on to say that this Jesus who was made, or I should say who was, who was the one who created everything that was made, not only became flesh and made his dwelling among us, he is the one who is revealing the glory, the glory of the one and only. And this is where it really gets deep. Are you ready? This is where it gets exciting. Because in using that phrase, John is bringing in, in the Old Testament, all the memories for those who were Jewish in reading this gospel about the times where God made his presence among his people. And in particularly, when you think of that one who is the glorious one who came, that visible, visible manifestation of God in the Old Testament was called a theophany. It was called a, a time when God entered into the creation in such a way that people could discern his presence. For the, for the Israelites, when they came out of Egypt and God was leading them through the wilderness, he led them with a pillar of, of cloud by day. It was a, a, a literally, a, a, I guess it was just this one big smoky existence that they would follow this cloud wherever it led them. And then at night, it would be a pillar of fire. And he led them to a uh, a mountain called Horeb where there God revealed to Moses his will for the people to understand. It was called the law of God, the Ten Commandments. Can you say them? And in those Ten Commandments, God revealed what it is to love God in the first four commandments and to love our neighbor as ourself, the last six. But here's where the story takes a turn. While Moses is on the mountain getting these laws and being face-to-face -face with the living God, the people of God are worried that Moses isn't going to return. He was up on the mountain a long time, so they decided we need to know that God is with us. We need to know his presence is taking care of us. So they built a golden calf. You, you can go back and read it in chapter 33 and 34 of Exodus. Actually, beginning with chapter 32. And when they built that calf, God told Moses, you must go down the mountain because the children of Israel are sinning greatly against me. And as he comes down the mountain, he sees what's going on. And if you've seen the Cecil B. DeMille's movie, it's not true to the scriptures. He takes the tablets and throws them. Charlton Heston, remember him? Throws them on the on the top of the, of the altar that's the golden calf, and it all breaks apart. Well, that's not exactly how it happened, but he did drop the tablets, throw them down, and they broke apart. And God had to bring judgment upon his people. I won't ruin that part of the story. But here is what's so important. In the midst of the glory of God, the people feared and turned to idolatry. And because of that, God said, I will not let my presence go with you into the promised land. I'll take, I'll, I'll appoint an, an angel to go before me. 
And when Moses heard that, it drove such fear in his heart because he said, Lord, how will they know that we belong to you unless you have come with us? How will we know that your glory will be seen in the earth unless your presence is among us? Well, I won't go into too long, much longer of explaining this, but I do want you to understand if you go back to Exodus 33 and you look at this, that the glory that God displays in these days speaks of his goodness. Because in that moment of decision, God says, I'm going to have to decide what to do with these people who have sinned against me. And Moses cries out and he says, Lord, I want to know your glory. Give me three things. You said you would have someone to help me lead these people. You have yet to show that. Are you going to do this? And God said he would. He said, secondly, I want to know that you'll go with us into the promised land. I want to be certain that you will not abandon us. And God said, I won't. But then here, God, Moses cries out. He says, but I want to know your glory. And it's at that point that God speaks to Moses and says, okay, here's what I'm going to do for you, Moses. There is a place where there's a cleft of the rock. And I want you to go in that cleft. And because of your sins and because of the sins of your people, you cannot look upon me because if you do, you will die because of your sins. But I am going to let you be in the cleft of that rock and I'm going to place my hand over it so that as I walk by you, you will beheld my glory, the presence of myself, you will know. And then I'll remove my hand so that you only see my back as I go past you. And as God did that, God declared to Moses, listen, God declared to Moses, I am the Lord, the Lord your God, compassionate and gracious. I am slow to anger. I am abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness and rebellion and sin. Yet, he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children for their children for the sins of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Why does he say that? Because he was compassionate to what Moses was facing and the children of Israel had done. The two words there that are so important are hesed and emet. Hesed is loving kindness. And so this birth of this child, Jesus in the manger, the warm fuzzies we get from it, all of that is great, but what the gospel wants us to comprehend is that this coming of Jesus was not because you are good people. It wasn't because you know how to celebrate a celebration. It was because God loved you that in the midst of our sin, in the midst of the world, in moral confusion, spiritual de de decay, and overwhelming wickedness, God has chosen to become flesh out of his loving kindness. And the second word is just as powerful. It speaks of God's faithfulness. Faithfulness to what? To his word. 
You see, all through the Old Testament, people were aware of their sins, and they would take bulls and calves and goats to the, to the direction of God and offer them in sacrifices. But nowhere can you find in the Old Testament any sacrifice that would atone for their sins. It was a way in which they practiced the belief that God had said, I will make an atonement for you. In fact, he tells one of the prophets, the bulls of the blood of bulls and goats does not take away sin. The Lord does. How would he do that? How would the Lord take away your sin, my sin? And there is the glorious message of John. The glory of this child being born into the world. The glory that the word became flesh is that he would be the one who would take your sins and pay the penalty for you. Because he would be without sin. Powerful, isn't it? That's why in Hebrews you find, you find this word. It says very interesting. The Hebrews, as it's written to Jews and, uh, from Christians in the early day. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purifications for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven, so he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. You hear it? This joy of Christmas, guys, is the joy that we know that there is a Savior who has forgiven us. That God has provided this salvation. It's not something we did for ourselves. It is this indwelling, purposeful work of God that He comes into the hearts of humans like us cleanses us of our sins, gives us a new heart that yearns and longs to fulfill our purpose, which is to love God, to glorify Him, and to enjoy Him forever. But you know the greatest thing about being alive in the day that we live? The glory that Moses experienced in the cleft of the rock. The glory that John saw in the birth of Jesus coming into the world pales in comparison to the glory that happens when the church, you and I, begin to tell others of the gospel and we begin to see people's lights in their minds turn on and they get it. Amazingly, we go and we just give a message that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him would not perish but have eternal life. And John says this is eternal life to know God and the one he has sent. And when you share that gospel, when you speak it to other people, you will see the glory of God evident in their life. Because their hearts will be changed, not by your power, not by the words you share, but by the power of God given under heaven whereby we must be saved. And that's why Paul wrote in Romans, 
I'm not ashamed of Jesus. I'm willing to go to prison to tell others about him. Let me tell you, some of you have gone through your entire life and you've never risked, you've never risked the possibility of learning how to share or even sharing about your faith with other people. And you're feeling dry and you're feeling like, is God really near? Does he really care? Let me tell you, you take seriously what Jesus said. Go and tell others about me. And suddenly you will see the glory of God in ways you've never seen it before. Do you believe that? We'll know by what you do. word became flesh and he dwelt among us do you know he's still among us today would you pray with me our gracious God and our father we are so grateful for the glory of the one and only the one who makes the meaning of Christmas so overwhelmingly glorious that God so loved us that he became flesh like us, dwelt among us in this sinful dark world, and yet was without sin. And through him, you have delivered us from spiritual confusion and moral decay and have brought us into the light of truth and life. Thank you so much, Jesus for emptying yourself from the glories of the Father, leaving heaven and becoming like us in every way. Glory to you.